1: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Productivity, it's not about how busy we are. It's how much we accomplish. I don't think we've ever been so busy while accomplishing so little.
3: Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. William James wrote a line I love. He said, We must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or default. Our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to. Yeah, that seems about right. (laughs) And I'm thinking about that quote staring at Chris Bailey's new book, Hyperfocus. It's this really red cover with this giant arrow on it. And honestly, just looking at it stresses me out a little bit. But what's in this book has stayed with me for months now. This is a book about how to control what you pay attention to. It's a book about what your attention actually is, how much it can really hold, how easily we overwhelm it, and how often we're not even sure where it is. This is something I believe really strongly. One of the great struggles of living in this age, not the only one, but a more important one that people give it credit for, is keeping control over our attention because everyone and everything around us is trying to hijack it at all times, trying to make it so we're not paying attention to things we should be paying attention to. And it matters in our lives and it matters for government and justice and politics and being happy and being a good friend and family member. I don't think we have a good discourse around this, but I think it is so important. And this is a conversation about it. This is a conversation in a world trying to take your attention from you about how to fight back. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, Kleinshow at Vox.com. Here's Chris Bailey. Chris Bailey, welcome to the podcast. Ezra Klein, thanks for having me on the podcast. So here's where I wanted to start. How do you become a productivity expert? What does it mean to be a productivity expert? Is anybody
2: really an expert? Well, I, I, have, I have, this have the back of your book right here.
3: Expert. I have the back of your book. And the first oh, thing it man. says is
2: Chris Bailey is a productivity expert. The thing is... I wrote that bio, and this this is what people (laughs) don't talk about. Everybody writes their own bios. You know, it sounds like everybody's talking themselves up in their bio, but everybody's writing about themselves. But yeah, I've been incubating this idea in the back of my mind because uh, the more I learn about this idea of productivity, the more I realize I don't know about this idea of productivity. I, I think that's what. Quote, being a quote-unquote expert is about is, you know, you, you bring sort of a hyper-awareness to one field as you uncover more questions about that field. So, so my passion, my curiosity has always been this idea of becoming more productive, but I, I feel like, like I'm becoming less and less of an expert over time, if that makes sense, because, you know, you learn more things about the subject, but you also uncover more things that you don't know. Do you find that about politics too? I do, um, particularly in this era where um, nobody knows Uh, anything. No, especially as a Canadian, (laughs) speaking to you from Canada, I really don't know anything what's happening down there. Please, please help. But before we we jump into the book, I I wanted
3: to interrogate actually the word productivity a little bit because- this is a book I, I'll say I really enjoyed, and actually has stuck with me in some pretty in some pretty deep ways. Okay, and yet the part of it that I find um, myself rebelling against, which is the the part of this sort of whole discipline, I find myself rebelling against, is the the, the productivity part, hyper focus. There's yeah. this there's this language that it's like what we're trying to do. Is just like wring every last drop of work out of ourselves, and like always come up with ways to get a little bit more. And, and in a way, I don't feel like that's a book you've written, and yet in the discourse that it fits into, yeah, I I, I think there's some kind of tension here that the productivity world mm-hmm. does a good job reflecting, but not a good job. It seems to me actually. Talking about or, or, or working its way through, so I wanted to get you to reflect a little bit yeah. on the on like the idea of productivity. What
2: is productivity? Yeah, and like how do you see it versus how do you think it is seen? Yeah, no, I, I actually agree with you one hundred percent because when you mention this word productivity, what what comes to mind? Uh, for anyone, really is something that feels so cold and corporate and all about this mindless efficiency doing more 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 faster, faster faster and if i 'm honest with you um, that that 's the attitude that i had had in going into experimenting with this space, but the more I uncover about this topic it, it, I, I realize that it 's really about this idea. Of intentionality, and you know, if you look at the cover of Hyperfocus, just the name, Hyperfocus—the cover is red. It's very intense. There's a lot of energy there. It's high energy, as, as they say. It's not low energy. Uh, what what you know that kind of fits within this dialogue, as you say. But my intention with this book—it really is a book about intention and attention and the science behind both of those topics—is to create a, a sort of Trojan horse to enter into this productivity space to appeal to these people that, that want to accelerate their work, but then kind of remind them that, you know, maybe productivity isn't about doing more, more, more faster, faster, faster. Uh, maybe it's about doing the right things and doing those things deliberately and with intention. And so the, the idea that I had going in, into this space, um, y- you know, maybe a decade ago was doing more, more, more. But I keep coming back to that idea of intentionality. If there's not intention behind what you're doing, whether in general, as I wrote about in the first book, whether in the moment, as I cover in this book, then what are you doing? where's the meaning of what you're doing? You're just kind of working on this reactive autopilot mode and there's no room to step back because you're just kind of doing things in response to the work that comes your way instead of setting a course for where you want to go and where you you need to go, frankly, I think. Something I like in the way you put that, that
3: cultural message of more, 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 what it creates in a lot of people, um, in my experience, and, and certainly what it creates in me, is a veneration of busyness. And so if you feel like you're really busy, which nothing feels busier than constantly clicking between my two Gmails and Slack and Twitter and back to my Gmails and to Slack and Twitter and then to Vox Published and then to, and, <laughs> and so there's this feeling of busyness, which is a more, more, more feeling. You're doing a lot, you're exhausted. And then, well, that must mean I'm being productive and, and I'm fascinated by the way in which we have a intuition about how this should feel and what it should look like that increasingly seems to me to have been hijacked. That is one of the intuitions that social media platforms and, and Slack and all kinds of other things have been able to take great advantage of, like, like hooking into that impulse in us. And... As far as I can tell, we're not actually getting anything more done. Productivity as an economic measure is not up in the economy. There's like this big mystery about it. Why why don't we see more productivity increases? And I think the reason is that for all this new technology, we're spending just a lot more time
2: distracted even though we think that because it's so busy, it must be getting something done. And there's kind of that busyness as a status symbol, too, where when you say you're busy to somebody who asks, how are you doing, Ezra? And you say, oh, I'm so busy, Chris. I got this new book I'm working on. I got some articles. I've got these interviews coming up. I've got the podcast. It's kind of this status symbol that we wear to say, the world needs me so much. It's pulling me in a thousand different directions. But to go back to what we were chatting about right off the top of the podcast, uh, you know, this idea of being an expert, I I noticed this idea in myself. Where, after I published the productivity project, I found that without a book deadline under me to propel me forward, I began to take on more busy work. Uh, I checked social media more often, I checked email, I turned on alerts, I turned on all these notifications. And that kind of took away the guilt. And I think there's a guilt that, that is fascinating that we experience in a lack of busyness. But I think we experience that same guilt because of a lack of intentionality behind what we're doing. Uh, you know, when we don't have intention behind what we're doing, this guilt, this, uh, this worry, this doubt begins to fill our attention because we feel uncertain about the past, the present, or the future, which those emotions correspond to. And I noticed that guilt began to seep in, so I filled it with kind of this mindless busyness. But, and that led me to think, okay, if I call myself, let's be honest, I call myself a productivity expert, and I face this this BS over the course of the day, all these these distractions that surround me, maybe other people do too. Maybe this is a phenomenon that is true with all of us. And what I began to find was, um, I don't think we've ever been so busy while accomplishing so little. And productivity, it's not about how busy we are. It's not about how much we produce, even though that's kind of in the name. But rather, at the end of the day, it's how much we accomplish. And in the moment, you know, moment to moment to moment to moment is where we act towards our intentions. But in that same moment, these things we call distractions, which are really just more attractive things that we really prefer to pay attention to than, than our most meaningful tasks, than the ones that contribute the greatest to how much we accomplish. That's what we gravitate toward because our attention is hardwired in a way to do that, where we pay attention naturally to anything that is pleasurable, anything that we find threatening, or anything we find novel. And so you mentioned bouncing around between a bunch of different <laughs> apps in a loop Instagram to to Vox to the web to the news to Facebook to, to going between these apps. There's nothing more pleasurable or threatening or novel on the planet than the smartphone that's in our pocket or by our side or or that we're listening to this podcast on. And so I think uh, I make the argument in the book that this is an impulse that is natural. It's natural that we fall into these pits of distraction. But just as essential as that is that we get out in front of these distractions because they're so difficult to resist in the moment because that's just the way our brain is wired. There's a book that came out a couple of years ago called Fake
3: Work that, that has this core concept I really mm. like. Which is that there's a huge amount of the work or the thing that feels like work that people do all day, every day, <laughs> that actually has nothing to do with their or their organization's goals. So I, I always think here of you know some of this like yeah. constant you know Gmail and and Slack checking, where like I don't get paid here to check my email a hundred times a day and uh, like no. keep up on everything everybody is saying in Slack. I, I get paid to produce podcasts and write articles and come up with new products and and whatever else I do for the organization. And yet it all feels like work. Um, It all has masqueraded as work, right? In in, in the old days, if you just like put a television on your desk and you were watching sitcoms, your boss would walk by and say, you're not supposed to just be watching Cheers. You're supposed to be working. But now they walk by and you're looking at your email or you're looking at Twitter or you're looking at Slack and it looks like working. And to you, it feels like working. And then it's the end of the day and you're exhausted and you've done nothing. And I found it to be this really, really helpful concept because – again like we are very socialized into the idea of working so of what people have been able to do to your point is smuggle in things that look like work and feel like work mm-hmm. but are more appealing than work and actually don't produce anything for us they produce things for you know like for twitter produces attention engagement and and the same for facebook it's a really sneaky thing that's happened <laughs> and, uh, and and the more it's gotten
2: the more the lines are blurred the worse it is Yeah, and and to make matters worse there, we tend to look at how busy we are as a sort of uh, proxy measure for how productive we are. Uh, But really, when that busyness, it's all about what we accomplish, and and more than that, whether we accomplish what we seek out to do, whether we accomplish our intentions. I would argue that we're perfectly productive whenever we accomplish what we set out to do. And so, you know, today, you know, we're we're chatting now, I'm writing some articles, I'm promoting the book in, in various ways, as one does, and so if I achieve those things... I'll be perfectly productive, but tonight, when all this is done, my intention is to binge watch Netflix uh, while ordering a pizza while drinking wine. And if if I accomplish that, maybe specifically the show "Explained" on Netflix. May- oh, it's low key plug. Very nice, Ezra. <laughs> Ten points. Um, wasn't that low key? No, it's it's very overt. It's a very o- overt plug, uh, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> and if I accomplish that, I'd argue that we're per- I was perfectly productive there too. But you know, the problem is that. We we have very few ways of measuring our productivity when when we do knowledge work for a living you know if one person writes 400 words for an article and another person writes 800 words for an article the second person might be on the surface twice as productive but what if the 400 words I think the Gettysburg address was around 400 words um, what if those words were as consequential as the Gettysburg address and so you know we can't measure productivity that way in, in just output but we tend to look at busyness as a proxy for our productivity when we have very few signals to glom onto. And so I think the best benchmark that we can use to measure our productivity is by measuring it against the intentions that we set at the start of the day. I haven't found anything better. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking
0: experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
1: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
3: So, I want to get into the key idea of the book.
2: What is your attentional space? Oh, yes. This is, uh, scientists call this our working memory capacity, but this is what is in our mind at the moment. And so, the essential thesis of the book is that by managing our attention better, we're able to manage our life better. And it's a very visual idea. I, I picture it in the book as as kind of this circle that we welcome Objects of attention into. And so I'm welcoming this conversation into it right now. Or, you know, I can either defend this space against the distractions that pop up around me, or, or I cannot. I can kind of let them go free and, and fall victim to this novelty bias. And so by managing our attention better, we manage our life better because if there's one singular idea that that I found in the book and in doing all this research, it's that the state of our attention determines the state of our life. If this space, if we cram it full of things in the moment, if we try to do three or four things in the moment, carrying on a conversation while texting somebody while eating a meal... We're not going to really pay attention to anything, and we're going to feel like our life is being tugged in a bunch of different directions because these moment-to-moment experiences accumulate to create a life at the end of the day. And so this is, I think, something that we don't get enough of, especially in this productivity space with all these quote-unquote experts running around, is that there's a lot of books on time management, but attention management is something that we have never needed more. Cal Newport talks about this a little bit, whose work that I love you know a few other people do as well but this idea of attention management i think is something sorely lacking so that's the idea of our attentional space it's essentially what is on our mind in the moment the other key
3: concept here is that the attentional space is a lot more limited than people think it is yeah. Th- this to me was the core it's like these two things together that we have this attentional space and it is so much smaller than we like to pretend so give me the argument on that. Yeah. Like how how limited is my attentional space? What can I have in that? How and what happens when it gets
2: overloaded? <laughs> you can have very few things in that in the moment. A conversation, for example, takes up over half of our attention in the moment. And so this is why we can't carry on two conversations at once. It would be great. If we had you know 10 times the working memory and attentional space to to give to our life and to our work, I could be doing uh, five or six interviews right now. Uh, you could be writing an article while you while you process what I'm saying, while you also check Facebook and Instagram, maybe maybe I could also be, Eating pizza with a bit of my attention, or, or binge watching uh, the show on Netflix. But our attention is so constrained in the moment. And, and moment to moment, it, we receive 11 million bits of perceptual information at any given time. These are sights, sounds, thoughts, potential things we could be focusing on. But in the moment, we can only pay attention to 40 of those bits. And while that's kind of how much information we take in, and the information that is in our mind, in our attentional space at any given moment, is very constrained as well. We used to think that we could keep about seven unique bits of information in that attentional space. But the best research that I found, you know, this is kind of a dark point in writing this book, going down this rabbit hole of studies into how many things that can occupy our, our attention at once. But the best research that I found shows that we can only keep about four unique chunks of information in our mind at once. So if we're walking through the grocery store, we can keep the fact that we have to get avocados, and uh, you know, four different ingredients. But then if we pay attention to something else, one of those might slip through the cracks if it's not encoded into our long-term memory. And so there are better ways we can manage this space, but that's kind of the crux is that with so many things we could pay attention to, this attention that we have is so profoundly, limited. And, and I think that's what makes it essential that we be deliberate about how we manage our attention and not do it on autopilot mode. Because, you know, there's kind of this imbalance between the things that we can pay attention to, isn't there? And so this impulse where we pay attention to anything that's pleasurable or threatening or novel is something we need to get out in front of because our attention is so constrained. What struck me uh, about the book was how much of it was
3: fundamentally a mindfulness practice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This book is kind of like a Trojan horse for mindfulness. That, that's kind of how I see it. You have this very nice line where you say, this is what mindfulness is, noticing
3: what your mind is full of, which I always like because I think a lot of people think of mindfulness as, as stress reduction, or you know, and obviously there's the achieving nirvana dimension of it. Yeah. But I, I've done a lot more of that practice in the past couple of years, and I've been really struck by how much it's not really stress reduction. What yeah. it is is visibility into what's really happening in your head. And the idea that you cannot control or even understand where your attention is going, without a pretty difficult, constant mindfulness to it. Yeah, it is interesting to me because I don't think people think that attention is something you have to be mindful of. That it almost sounds tautological, right? Mm-hmm. Your attention is what you are attending to. Yeah. like. What do you mean? I need to see what my mind is full of. My mind is full of what my mind is full of. And that's the only thing I'm seeing. So, so pull that apart. Like, what is, what is the mindfulness practice here? And how is it different from just, how is knowing what your mind is full of just different from having a mind full of something? Do
2: you have a meditation practice, by the way? Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. What do you notice from it? So I meditate uh, most days, roughly about 20 minutes in the morning. I'm a big fan of the the 10% Happier app if yeah. anybody is looking for app recommendations on this. But I I do different kinds of meditations. But it, it's become something pretty important to me. But I've been surprised by what it offers and doesn't offer. Yeah. I, I really started to do it at a time when I felt my anxiety was basically out of control. Um, I was launching Vox. It was just a lot. And I, I found it a little helpful on that, but not as helpful as I thought. What it has done, though, over the course of years, and it's really been the first time I've had a years-long mindfulness practice, is my ability to know what is happening in myself, yeah. how am I Feeling like what am I actually thinking about? What is going on with me? Yeah, is so much greater than it was before, and that's it, not always a comforting thing. Oftentimes, I'm not super happy with the answer. I'm like agitated a lot more than I used to think I was. Uh, I, I'm more often underslept. The amount that it has attuned me to how much uh, sleeping matters for my mood and my energy has been pretty profound. But but so I do. I have this pretty regular practice, and and the way it's manifested more than anything in my life is a lot more self-knowledge that then allows me, hopefully, to to make better decisions uh, for myself in the future. But it's one reason I, I connected to the book, because I have come to really believe that the difficulty of just knowing where your attention actually is, Yeah. after you see for years that you cannot take 10 breaths without watching your attention wander away from you, and you can't even reliably notice that it has wandered away from you because you have wandered away with it. Like it's yeah. a pretty humbling experience. Th- this and is the, the, it's, th- yeah, yeah. That's the beautiful. That's maybe thing more about... answer than you wanted. <laughs> oh
2: no, no. I lo- th- this. Is my one of my favorite topics to to talk about. It, th- that's one of my favorite parts about meditation. Is it trains the attention that we give to our world in the moment. You know, to speak to a bit about what you were saying, and to connect it with what we were just chatting about with our attentional space, it's this idea of becoming aware of what is occupying our attention in the moment. You know, our mind, a lot of distractions come from our external environment, about 50% of them. And the other 50% come from the depths of our own mind, and so the more often we reflect on what's occupying our attention, you know, th- this is called meta-awareness, uh, metacognition. This is essentially whenever we check up on what's occupying our attentional space, then we can notice. You know, mindfulness is in my mind just a, a process of noticing things. We notice our breath, we notice how we're feeling, we notice what we're thinking, we notice what's what's occupying our attention then we can realign this attention that we have uh, that's very limited to what's important well, one of my favorite ways of of training our minds to do this in addition to a meditation practice a, a mindfulness practice is setting an hourly chime on your phone or or on your uh, Maybe, if you don't want your phone to interrupt you, maybe another device to kind of use as a cue. So, every hour when the chime goes off, uh, notice what's occupying your attention. Are you distracted? Is your mind wandering? Because we notice our mind wanders uh, about five times every single hour. Our mind wanders at the same time 47% of the time. But meditation has this beautiful, beautiful effect on this attentional space that we have. You mentioned sleep. You may notice when you get less sleep, that you pay attention to to things that are less complex. And it's because our attention positively shrinks on those days, including when we don't take breaks. This attentional space, we can usually fit about four things into it. But when our sleep is compromised, this attentional space shrinks by, I believe the number is about 58%. And so we have 58% less RAM, less memory in the moment to give to our world, to complex things in our work. And so we end up taking on things that prove to be distractions, to prove to be fake work, that prove to be, I love that you got fake news, you got fake work. But meditation actually expands the size of our attention. It expands it by about 30%. And so if we get enough sleep, we work at capacity. But at the same time, if we meditate on top of that, we can process more in the moment. And this is, I think, essential when we do knowledge work for a living. We don't do work that's simple, that, that's repetitive, that requires physical lifting. We do work that's mentally draining and requires this heavy mental lifting. And so we need all the attention we can possibly bring to our work in the moment. That's, I think, what's so beautiful about this practice is you check up. What's occupying your attention? But another side benefit, in case people need a bit more encouragement for the practice, is that When we switch from doing one thing to another, you know, multitasking, I I make a big distinction in the book between multitasking and task switching. So multitasking is when we pay attention to more than one thing in the moment. But task switching is when we go from one thing to another, to another, to another, to another, switching between projects and tasks and apps and and all these different elements of, of our focus. And when we meditate, we experience less residue from the previous task after we switch to another one. And so there's always this residue. We can never cleanly switch from one task to another. It works better if we're on a time pressure. So if we're on a tight deadline, we ship the project, that might not contain much residue as we switch to the next thing. But meditation kind of sweeps up this attentional space when we do work that's not as time sensitive. And so it has all these beautiful benefits. It expands the size of our attentional space. It makes us more aware of what's inside of there in the first place so we can realign more than five times every hour when our attention veers off and we experience less residue to boot. It's one of my... You know, I I have to be honest, I, I care about productivity more than I care about the spiritual aspect of meditation. And if it didn't provide, a tangible benefit in that arena, I probably honestly wouldn't do it. But I find that I'm able to focus so much more deeply whenever I meditate. I'm able to write more words, about forty percent more words by my calculations, because there's more attention to process things in the moment. And so, and that's I think the the thing that some researchers miss too is that we need to defend our attention because it's in demand. But there are ways to grow our attention too. Meditation and mindfulness being a couple of ways that I love. So one of the things that that you mentioned in there, and I want to go back to it, is this idea of the mind wandering. And this is where I'd like to bring
3: in one of the other big concepts of your book, which is intention. Not just attention, but intention. Because the idea of the mind wandering is actually a weird concept, (laughs) if you think about it. I mean, it makes sense when you're meditating. You're sitting there trying to focus on your breath, and now you're thinking about that argument you had with somebody three days ago. And okay, your mind has wandered from what it was doing. But during the course of your day, it isn't clear what is your mind wandering. I mean, you're wandering along with it. You, yeah. The idea that you and your mind are also are, are all that different is at the very least a complicated one. And so, you know, if you ask me when I'm sitting there staring at Twitter, is my mind wandering? It's like, no, 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 I'm right here. I'm staring at Twitter. And and that's why I'm very fascinated by, by the idea of the intention, because yeah. the intention operates as a baseline from which you can tell if your mind has wandered, right? I, like, it, it seems to me the real question with your... Mindfulness, the 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 way the way you are prescribing it in the book is am I paying attention to what I intended to pay attention to? Yeah. But to do that,
2: you need to know what you intended to pay attention to. Yeah. So so can you talk a little bit about intention? I think intention is what makes us human. It's this idea that I think is so profoundly connected. Um, to who we are. It's what separates us from animals. There are a few select instances of animals who can plan for the future, birds who cache food and things like that. But this ability to plan for and create a future for ourselves is so central to who we are, and I think what separates us from from all the other species. And that's not to say that mind-wandering isn't a good thing, because our mind, you know, if you think of when your best ideas strike you, you're hardly ever focused on something, Like, it might be taking a shower, and then your mind wanders to a problem that you faced yesterday and how you solved that in the past and how you can act differently that day in order to solve the problem better. But I think there always has to be intention behind what we do. Now, now actually, I, I want to backtrack on that a bit. It's a good thing that we have this autopilot mode on which we can do things. Because let's say that I was sending you a simple email, we're scheduling a time for this interview, you suggest a time, and it, and it works for me. I probably wouldn't you know, open up a Word document and draft up a a draft and then show it to my fiance and then share it around between a bunch of different people to really plan uh, a response that says something like, yeah, sure, sounds good. You know, so it's a good thing that we have this autopilot mode on which we're able to work because we're able to to get things done more efficiently that way. 40 to 45% of everything we do is a habit. But I think the one thing that we should not be doing out of habit, is choosing what to focus on. And it's, it's such a simple conclusion, but it's one that I think has such profound benefits when you act toward it on a day-to-day basis. You know, the more often you choose what you do before you do it, the more productive that you become. And that idea is all about intention. Intention is just choosing. It's another word for choosing, and so the more you choose what you focus on, the more productive you become uh, but on, on that mind wandering point, you know I think choosing to mind wander is one of the most productive things that we can do because of where our mind wanders to uh, one random study my mind is kind of like a, a a Mendeley database or it's just a collection of research studies uh one that i want to pull from right now is, is what's conducted by Jonathan Smallwood and Jonathan Schooler. And they found that where our mind wanders to when we just let it be is absolutely fascinating. Uh, it wanders to the future 48% of the time. Um, and so it has this perspective bias where we are wired to plan when our mind is wandering. And so that goes back to that idea of intentionality is when we let our mind wander, it naturally gravitates to this point where it plans for the future, where it thinks about what we're doing in the present. It thinks about the the present 28% of the time. We think it wanders to the past a lot, but it wanders to the past just 12% of the time and often to draw ideas that we can uh, remember from there. And the rest of the time, our mind is dull or blank. If you're quick with math, you might realize that the numbers don't add up to 100% because, you know, sometimes our mind is just kind of not there. Uh, Our attention is depleted. But I think deliberately entering into this mode is powerful too. And it lets us set intentions for when we do focus later on. There's a funny argument your book makes about that
3: you call scatter focus space, which is that you want to be doing something else with your primary attention. So you you have this long list of folding clothing or like drawing dots on a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> yeah. Something that I, I noticed for myself is that I often get into this very very weird. I, I call it like a fugue space. Yeah. Uh, when I'm on planes, I almost never buy internet, and I tend to read on planes. And I just ha- I have to have a notepad next to me because like I'll drop into this strange attentional space where I'm reading but having a lot of ideas about other things. Yeah. And there's something about on the one hand, it doesn't seem like I can just do it. By sitting there with nothing in front of me, because I'll get too bored. And on the other hand, if I have too many things in front of me or too many abilities to distract myself, I won't do it either, because I'll just continue going down a, a chain of you know like <laughs> yeah. old Wikipedia articles about Saved by the Bell. <laughs> but but there's something about that like space where it's like you have a little bit to do,
2: but not very much. Yeah. Explain why that is. Like, what is the theory behind that? Well. I love doing its experiments and looking at the research. One of the ones I did in writing this book was purposefully making myself bored for an hour a day for an entire month. And so this is anything but scientific. Uh, but I did things like I, I watched one cloud in the sky for an hour, I peeled exactly five potatoes, uh, made that last an hour. I read the iTunes terms and conditions for an hour. They're they're actually surprisingly short. Uh, I I waited on hold with uh, Air Canada's baggage claims department. And the funny thing about that was it took about 25 minutes. I got through, a lady answered. And when I got through a second time, the same lady answered. And so... I just wanted to call out Air Canada a little bit on the pod and say that I think there's just one lady operating Air Canada's baggage claims department and and people should be uh, aware of this information. Well, maybe
3: they just don't lose many bags. Maybe they're just an amazing airline.
2: Maybe, yeah, but... uh... I never check my my baggage, but <laughs> the little town I live in in Canada, we had, like they kind of put them under the airplane because they fly with these little rickety planes that feel like they're gonna fall out of the sky at any moment, but somehow magically they never do. And I think they've lost my carry-on bag three or four times, so I have a <laughs> maybe a different theory is true. <laughs> but with doing something habitual, that is absolutely fascinating. I geeked out over the research pretty uh, hardcore on that. Because there are multiple ways that we can let our mind wander. We, We can kind of let it wander to chew over a problem. We can let it wander when we're just kind of waiting around bored. And ultimately, from that boredom experiment, I found that my mind wandered to these same places that were in the research. It wandered mostly to the future with a bit of the present and a tiny bit of the past. But Boredom is an emotion that isn't worth experiencing, but this mind wandering, especially when it's on something habitual, is. You know, When we do something simple, habitual, when we swim laps, when we walk to get our morning coffee, these habitual tasks have been shown to lead to more creative insights than when we let our mind just be and wander. And plus, it makes things more fun because instead of just laying down with a notepad or something, we can let our mind be, we can let it rest, we can let it wander. And this lets us identify like you do on the plane, or like most of us do in the shower when we garden. It lets us plan for the future because our mind wanders to the future so often, and it lets our attention rest because whenever we don't regulate our attention, our attention has a chance to recharge. It's when we constantly have to regulate our attention, moving it around between a bunch of different things that we deplete how much mental energy we have. One of my favorite new hobbies that I've taken up after writing this book is... uh, you know, on a whim, I decided to sign up for a local knitting course. So, so my fiance and I, we went down, we, we took in this knitting course. And I thought, you know, this will be a fleeting interest, you know, just like the piano, there's a piano behind me in my office. And I think looking at it, yeah, there's like a slight light layer of dust. Would you say there's a, yeah, the, our, our engineer says there's a layer of dust on the piano, just to confirm that fact. But I knit everywhere if you run into me on a plane i'll be i'll probably be knitting while listening to a podcast like this one uh, if you run into me in a coffee shop i was knitting at a coffee shop this morning <laughs> I knit all the time. I knit as a work break. I knit to pass the time. I knit in airport lounges because I find that it lets me do something habitual while I scatter my attention. It lets me rest in the day so I can approach my work with a greater amount of focus and energy. Uh, It lets me let my mind wander so I can wander to different ideas while I check up frequently on what's occupying my attention. And really, anything habitual will do. Find something habitual that you love and do it while you don't cram your attention full of uh, of distractions, and I think you'll you'll be surprised not only. The things you plan, the the conversations you want to have with people, the the ideas that you generate, but also how much rested you seem later on. And you know, going back to that idea of our attentional space, when we don't work with a proper amount of energy in the moment, like when we don't get enough sleep, we can only be at forty percent of our regular capacity. And so that rest is essential, I think, when we need to focus. And so you know, this is one of those counterintuitive ideas where I, I came at this from from this angle of, okay, how do we bring more attention to our work in the moment? How can we have this intensity of focus behind what we're doing at any one time? And then I realized like, it's not about focus. You know, how we unfocus is just as essential when it comes to being productive, when it comes to being creative because we can let our mind wander. And when it comes to, to living a, a meaningful life because this is when we actually process the meaning behind what we're doing when we're focused on something. Something you're making me think about there, I
3: did very, very poorly in in high school. I've talked about this on the podcast before, and I didn't really understand why at the time. But what became clear to me later is that I cannot process information by just having somebody stand up and lecture at me. Even today, where I'm a lot more disciplined, I can't call into a teleconference call and absorb it effectively. And what's funny is that I I loved podcasts, and I realized it was because – And I could absorb them. And it's because it was always the second thing I was doing. Mm. Uh, I would be walking my dogs or I'd be uh, folding clothing or or doing the dishes. And that's when I listened to podcasts. Then when I I was editor-in-chief of Vox, I I have a a little bit of the same trouble sometimes with meetings. Mm. And so I filled my office with fidget toys. (laughs) And I think to people, it looked like, oh, like uh, what a what a kooky guy Ezra is with all these like fun fidget toys. Yeah. But it's actually because weird. it was much easier for me to pay attention if my hands were occupied, right? Which is a, a similar idea to, to knitting. I, I don't feel like I understand why this would be. I, even right now, yeah. one thing I wish I could do is record podcasts while I'm walking around. Hmm. It'd be so much easier for me to be fully present in the conversation if we were walking. And the fact that I have to sit here and just, just be focused on one thing, it, it feels to me like it is in tension with one of the other ideas of the book, which is that it is easier, it's even a more relaxed state to be holding your attention on one thing, where in fact, I I often find it very – there's a real stress to holding your attention on one thing. There's a difficulty to it. Now, having it on five things is bad and having too many lures to to move away is bad too. But there's something about the difficulty of keeping it in one place as opposed to to two.
2: Do you have a theory for why that is? Is there research on why that is? I I haven't – Found much research on that, but I do have a theory. And, and it's that what we're doing, because we pair it with something that consumes most of our attention, but not all of it, and, and the performance on that thing doesn't matter. so we can we can initiate the habit sequence for for doing that certain activity in our mind. Uh, but once we initiate that habit sequence, our mind can follow through on it once we start uh, spinning the fidget spinner. We don't have to intervene on that habit sequence as much as, say, we're walking down the street and we have to avoid walking over potholes. And so at the same time that it's simple, it's habitual, it doesn't consume any of our attentional space once we get going with it, once we initiate that thing. But at the same time, It serves as a sort of anchor, much like the our breath is an anchor for a meditation practice. A fidget spinner, or one of my preferences when I'm recording a podcast, is to stand because, and our engineer uh, Russell will be able to to confirm this. That you know, I fidget, I stretch, I think, I you know, I walk around, I move around. It. He's nodding his head, and so these activities kind of sop up the rest of the room in our attentional space while anchoring us to focus on whatever it is uh, that we should be doing. And, and uh, that would be my theory, but uh, it might be wrong. I I feel it's right, but when you feel something is right, that might also mean it's wrong. So, Some, so that's my guess. Something that Feels to me related that you brought up earlier
3: is the brain's built-in novelty bias. Yeah, that whenever we switch tasks, there's a little bit of dopamine. And something I wanted to get you to to talk about was the study about electric
2: shocks. Could you <laughs> just go through that study? Yeah, yeah. If I'm remembering it correctly, uh, there was a team of researchers that brought a bunch of people into a laboratory, and they they got them to shock themselves, I believe, on their ankles, and then they asked how much they would pay. To not receive the electric shock again, and you know people gave a, a certain dollar amount, but after this point they said, okay, we're going to head out for a little bit, and they left the the electroshock thing on the participant's ankles, and just to see in the off chance anybody wanted to shock themselves again uh, to kind of occupy their attention in some way, and uh, what they found was that. I'm gonna to have to pull from this this database in my mind. This replies a bit hazy, but but I believe that 71% of the men in the study chose to shock themselves again, and uh, 26% of the women chose to, to shock themselves again. So take from uh, from that disparity <laughs> what you will. May, maybe women have their their stuff together a bit more than men do. Actually, I, I would argue that that's the case, but. Um, oh man, I'm going to receive a lot of email. But And by the way, they only let people into the second part of the study if they agreed that they would pay to not receive this shock again. So anybody that said, eh, the shock wasn't that bad, maybe I kind of enjoyed it because I'm into that sort of thing. They weren't allowed into the second part of the study to participate there. And so uh, it, it's shocking. Oh man. Yeah, I'm sorry I, I sort of point, saw everybody. that one coming. Maybe... maybe we- <clears throat> I'm just. Uh, Thank you, everybody for listening to the that podcast. Post, that's yeah. That, okay. We're, we're, we're this closing guy has to shop go now. Please.
3: You you have a, yeah. a nice but but uh. on that you have a nice point that you you make uh, around this, which is that because I think this is profound that our brains reward us for poorly managing our attention. Yes. That I think there's a discourse. Where the way we're jumping around between different things and the way we're not focusing on the thing we're supposed to be focusing on and we're procrastinating and we're distracted. There's a discourse of personal failure. Right.
2: You are fucking up somehow. Yeah. You are not doing the thing. Oh we you're can supposed swear. I did I I've been and I've been dodging swear. Okay. This is good. Oh yeah, we
3: can yeah, do it's a podcast. Dude, do, do go with your bliss, okay. find your bliss. Um but <laughs> The reframing of that, that actually that is what your brain is built to do, that you're built to be distracted, that you're built to manage your attention poorly. And so actually managing it well is an incredible constant effort. There's something, I think, a little bit more compassionate and freeing about that.
2: Yeah. And I would even go so far as to say that if there's one thing that people take away from this conversation, I, I hope it's that folks realize that if you're distracted all day, it's not your fault. This is the way our brains are wired. Just as our mind is wired to to wander during meditation, our brains are wired for distraction. And it, it's our evolution. and And I feel like I wish I had a nickel for every time our evolution comes up in a podcast. But at the same time, We're wired to to pay attention to anything that's a threat. So instead of uh, focusing with our complete productive attention and building a fire and uh, failing to to hear the saber-toothed tiger approaching at the side and getting eaten and not uh, living another day, we pay attention to the threats around us. We pay attention to cable news when it's behind our partner, when really we want to be paying attention to her or him. This is just the way our attention is wired. We're wired to pay attention to anything that's pleasurable too. And and so we pay attention when we receive an email notification in the bottom right-hand corner, or if you're on the Mac, the top right-hand corner of the screen. We're wired to pay attention to that over an Excel sheet that we happen to be working on because it's more pleasurable. And, And so it's really not our fault, but what this means is that we have to get out in front of this impulse. And, and um, you know th- this novelty bias is something that I also find fascinating that you mentioned offhandedly. But it really does suck us into this world of distraction, into a sort of dopamine fueled feedback loop where we're going to Instagram and we get a hit. We're going to Facebook and we get a hit. We're going to Twitter and we get a hit. We're going to the news and we get a hit. And before we know it, we realize, oh, shit, we've been laying down in bed for half an hour and not accomplishing much of anything. I forget who said this originally, but it's not my line. If the first thing we did in the morning was reach for a bottle of whiskey, we'd be an alcoholic. And so what does it mean that the first thing we do is reach for our phones in this state of of uh, mindless distraction? But we shouldn't feel bad about this. We won't get that time back, but that's done. You know how we can do things differently going forward is by taming these things ahead of time, by leaving our phone in another room as we sleep and waking up with with uh, our smart speaker or a, a traditional alarm clock. We can download a distractions blocker on our computer. Uh, a couple of my my favorites are Freedom, uh, the app, and and Cold Turkey, uh, the app, and many of these are free. Rescue Time is another app that will also show you how to how you spend your time. Uh timing is also available for the for the Mac and other great apps. Yeah I'm gonna and I'm gonna give a plug here. The Chrome extension block site. Blocks? I haven't heard of this one. It's great.
3: What uh it's it's just probably similar to the others, yeah. but, it, but it is two modes. One is like the normal block site. You know you have a couple things on your block list like Facebook or Reddit or whatever it might be. Yeah. And then there's also this work mode. And and in work mode you can create these separate modes, right? One is the way you're normally operating on the internet, where you just want some things to to not be available to you. Yeah. And then work mode is a much more stringent one. And and in work mode I I you can actually reverse it and do something called a whitelist, which I like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is only a couple only a couple of places are allowed. Mm. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. and that's much more effective.
2: Uh, So anyway, I've just been using that and like it a lot. There's also one called Cold Turkey Writer. If if you happen to be a, have you heard of this one? No, you should check this one out. It's an app where once you launch it, it kind of takes over your computer, and it doesn't let you out of the app until you've written a a certain word count or b you've written for thirty minutes or however much time you specify. And if you want out of the app, you have to restart your entire computer to access any other application that's that's what I love about freedom and cold turkey is you're stuck you know you you have no choice but to focus on things that are productive but that that's kind of the beauty of these applications too is in my eyes, anything we see as a distraction is just something that is a more uh, novel or pleasurable or threatening object of attention that, truthfully, we would rather be focusing on than what's truly meaningful or productive in the moment, uh, because that's what makes the task important. It's either productive or meaningful. And so, when you eliminate Every single alternative object of attention that is less important but more distracting than your work, you really give yourself no choice but to focus on what's actually important. It's, it's, it's simple, but, but it's profound in practice. The most valuable business.
1: Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds in envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time.
0: Drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails? Break free with ClickUp.com. The one app to replace them all. Imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space. No more chaos, just ClickUp. Your projects, tasks, and communication unified at last. Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started.
3: I got to say, it's funny to me I have this conversation because a couple of years ago, I was so on the other side of it. Huh. I, w- I was a dogmatic person in the, it's not good to be bored. What you want to be doing is swimming in information all of the time. Like I was very dogmatic. And, and the person who actually changed my mind on this was Cal Newport mm. um, in, in yeah. Deep Work. And I've had him on the podcast before if people, if people want awesome. to go back to listen. Yeah. But one of the arguments he makes that I found very persuasive was that you're also training your brain. That among other things, if every time you begin to feel the first hint of boredom, you turn it off, mm-hmm. you um, go and, and fire up Twitter or whatever, what you're training your brain to be is uh, to, to never tolerate any level of boredom, to, to become very anxious in the absence of immediate distraction. And it, we talk about this a little bit like it's steady state. But my concern is that it's not that, that that Newport is right that we're neuroplastic that we're always training ourselves in in one direction or another. I mean, I always think about this is like the the weird example, but people talk about the the Lincoln Douglas debates and and folks like leaving their house to go listen to these four hour debates. Mm. Uh, they were extremely long and 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 quite you know technical. In oral cultures, people just paid attention to singular things for much longer periods of time. I'm not saying there aren't incredible advantages to being in our fast paced culture, but I do think. We need to consider the, the the meta level of what we're doing. Not even yeah. is this a, a useful thing to do in the moment, but aggregated over the number of times we do it is teaching your brain that you can never be bored. I go into to restrooms and I'll, I'll see a bunch of dudes at urinals on their phone. Oh, that's the I worst. I always think yeah. that the, the level of teaching your brain to never be distracted, you need to like have your phone out at the urinal, which I'm not saying I have never done, by the way, because I, I probably have. It's very high, and that's the part of it that scares me. Actually, the way I'm, the way I've been changing my own brain to teach it to never tolerate rest.
2: Yeah, like I feel the same people that say, "Oh, I could never read a book anymore," are the same people who are kind of adapted to a, a higher level of stimulation. This is very much informed from the meditation and mindfulness practices that I have. But my theory is that we experience boredom whenever we ratchet down from a state of higher stimulation into a state of lower stimulation. And boredom is the feeling that we experience as our mind transitions into that state of lower stimulation. And so I I, I really do believe, and the research does back this up, that we do get accustomed to how stimulated we are. Um, Where, you know, it takes us a a few days to uh, ratchet down when we're entering into vacation mode on holiday. Uh, Where it takes us a a bit of time, if we're distracted all day, to when we pick up a book, uh, actually dive deep into it. Whereas, you know, before all these novel distractions around us, it was much easier to transition from one thing to another. And so, I would definitely fall on the side of the argument that you have moved over to yourself because our mind is fascinating that way. And you know, you don't have to look at a, a research report and you don't have to listen to some uh, expert like me or, or you uh, talk about this idea. Uh, you can experience this in your own life. And this is the, the truth about productivity is there's a lot of experts out there who have their, their five, their 10-step systems for accomplishing more. But I, I think whenever anybody has some system that you fall into and that these are the steps you follow, there's a bit of bullshit embedded within that system uh, because it's personal productivity. Everybody's different. And so we need to adapt the advice that works for us and leave the rest. And so, but at the same time, we have a lot of data at our disposal uh, with regard to this stuff. You know, maybe if if you're not able to read as well as you were before, look back at at the previous data that that you've accumulated in your own life and to a point at which you found you're able to dive deep into things like knitting or or reading a book or diving deep into a meaningful conversation with someone and ask, uh, what level of stimulation did you have throughout the day? Uh, Was it high? Was it low? Did you find that your attention was restful? Uh, how well were you able to focus in general and work on one thing for an extended period of time in that state? Because I think, and the research does back this up also, that we're distracted more often than we think we are. Uh, one of my favorite studies that I encountered uh, over the course of writing Hyperfocus was that, on average, when we're working in front of a computer, for example, especially when our phone is nearby, we focus on one thing for only 40 seconds before we switch to doing something else. And like you said, when we have Slack open in the background, when we have email open in the background, when we don't tame distractions ahead of time, that lowers down to 35 seconds when we focus on one thing to when we switch to something else. And so these are patterns that are worth observing in the way that you work, and the way that you live your life. Um, because one of the most meaningful things that you can do if you're having, let's say we're grabbing dinner and you run off to the washroom and you're checking your phone at the urinal, Ezra, um, and I'm, I'm at the table, one of the most productive things that I could do is to just let my mind be and let it wander. And I I would make the argument that this is one of the reasons why we experience our lives as less meaningful because the moment-to-moment experiences are less meaningful when we just check our phone when the other person leaves. But if I were to let my mind gravitate you know it'll probably remember the conversation that we were just having because there was a bit of attentional residue from that it'll probably wander to the the present and what we're eating at that moment and that experience will become more meaningful because we pay attention to it and we can process it because of that and i think that's a you know there's that layer of reflection on top of what we're doing that we're really missing out on when we fill each moment of the day to the brim with distraction the, the, this is a terrible answer because
3: it, it it has two important directions I want to go in, <laughs> and, and I'm worried I'll lose one of them. On the thing you just said, this is something – I did not expect us to go here exactly, but I have developed this idea over the last couple of years that gratitude is an emotion that requires space. Hmm. I have this very privileged life where I get to do a lot of interesting things and meet a lot of interesting people and have experiences that are the kind of experiences that if you had told me, I would have them. I, you know, years ago when I was a college kid or even, you know, six or seven years ago, uh, I would have laughed in your face. And and, I, and and yet I often experience the life that I live in real time as just like one damn thing after another. Yeah. It's like all just more work. And I was always kind of meta angry at myself about that, that, that I was having, you know, I talked to my mom and she'd be like, you know, oh, make sure you slow down and enjoy this. And it'd be like, no, I cancel down and I enjoy nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it took some time to, and some you know self experimentation and some mindfulness to to realize that I could enjoy things if I wasn't constantly running from one to the yeah. next. That there needed to be space between things yeah. for them to sink in, for me to reflect on them, for me to feel them. If there wasn't, then I didn't feel them. Then all I felt was the agitation of always being behind. And as odd as that sounds, and, and as maybe, you know, it's my own experience, and I don't I don't pretend to generalize it, it it seems to me to be at least possibly true for for a number of other people I've known or who I've spoken to about it. And that feeling of what does space do? Uh, there's a, a study I recently read that is in a piece about sleep, actually, that after soldiers have particularly traumatic experiences, they try to not let them go to sleep. Because sleep helps embed memory. And if you don't let the memory embed in the same way, you're less likely to get post traumatic stress syndrome. And so the idea that, you know, both for good and for bad, that things need space to sink in is a powerful one. It's certainly for me been a, a very different one in my life. Um, the idea that I should just pack as many cool things as I can into my days yeah. and into my weeks and into my months turned out to really not work. It just made it me enjoy none of them. I had to bring down the level of things I was doing, both both good and bad things, but just intense things yeah. in order to have any ability to, to feel that I was doing them.
2: What that reminds me of is One of the things I'm a bit of a nerd about is traffic flow, so how cars, vehicles move down the highway. And if you look at how traffic flows from afar, what allows it to continue moving forward isn't how fast the individual cars are moving, but rather it's how much space exists between the cars that allows the traffic to continue progressing forward. And I would make the argument that our work our attention, our lives are the same way, where it's the space between things that we think about our goals, we set intentions, we reflect on the meaning behind things. And so the distractions that, that fill our life, they're kind of like water in the way, where we have these tasks that we want to work on, but then we have uh, things like our phone that seep into the gaps in our schedule and steal the time and attention that we would normally spend uh, planning for the future and connecting the uh, constellations of dots that are swirling around in our mind and uh, reflecting on the meaningful things that we experience. Because, you know, one of my favorite ideas is that idea of gratitude. And we can only be grateful for what we savor and we can only savor what we pay attention to. And so it's very much that mindfulness practice in a way where. You have to notice the things that you want to be grateful for each day. One of my favorite rituals that I've done every single day for the last few years is at the end of the day, when my fiancé and I are falling asleep, if I'm traveling, which happens a lot for lecture circuits and stuff like that, but if I'm traveling, I call her and, and we have... We say goodnight, and we recall three things that we're grateful for uh, with one another, together. And we so often find... That they involve uh, each other. It was an experience we had. It was uh, when my fiance made me tea. It was you know a simple conversation, a simple thank you, and we haven't run out of things. If anything, we could probably list ten or twenty things every day and not run out. And we feel um, this is uh, an idea. I think Sean Altucher, something Altucher, he talks about where uh, gratitude is essentially the same as abundance. And we all have things to be grateful for. And, and when we notice them, I, I think we need to create that space between things so that we can actually let our mind wander toward them instead of moving to focus on the next thing.
3: So, something I'd be grateful for as we move to focus on the next thing is the final question we always ask on the podcast is: What are three books you've read that you'd recommend to the audience? <laughs> segway, so,
2: man, your segway game is pretty pretty good today. I
3: know I'm a, I, I got a lot of sleep and I'm I'm a, I'm a
2: professional. Um, <laughs> you meditated this morning. Meditated you, this morning. Did you, the whole yeah. thing. Your attentional space is sharp, man. Thank I love you. it. <laughs> um, so, three books. Yeah. So I, I chose three productivity books, and the first book was the book that got me curious about this idea of productivity, I think as a young teenager, which is Getting Things Done by David Allen. And the the central, central crux of that idea is that our head is for having ideas not for holding them. And it was essentially an attention management book before its time, before a wealth of research came. And and you know how like a to-do list helps you focus because you can get those things out of your head and into a system. This book is that way, but for your life. I I riff on a lot of his ideas and hyper-focus, and so his work informs mine a lot. The second one, productivity book, is called, and mind you, I should preface this by saying this book is a bit hippy-dippy, and so, you know, if you're like me, you'll probably ignore those parts, but this is the book that first introduced me to mindfulness, and that book is called Mindfulness in Plain English, and I don't know how to pronounce the author's name, and the sad part about that is it's in front of me right here, uh, <laughs> but if you Google Mindfulness in Plain English, the entire book is available for free online. Do um, You want to take a stab at it, Russell? <laughs> Hennepola. Hennepola. Good. Gunaratana. Guna, Guna Gunaratana. Bless you. Yeah, so so that's kind of a, sa- a second book that this got me into mindfulness. And, um, you know, feel free to ignore the hippy-dippy parts, but I think they're worth getting through. Maybe you'll even enjoy those too. Uh, the third is by Michael Greger, and it's called How Not to Die. And the reason I, I consider this to be a productivity book is it's so hard to get back our our time. And what he's done with his team is he's looked at what foods allow us to live the longest, looking at the science behind what we should eat. And he talks about the foods in the book and what we should eat to live longest. And I can't think of many books out there, attention aside, that will get you back time. You know, one of the most limited ingredients we have to to living our lives. And so uh, those are the three I have to recommend.
3: Chris Bailey, the book is Hyperfocus. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Chris Bailey for being here. I hope you all paid close attention, that you had full control over your attention that whole time. Thank you to my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show will be back soon to take 90 minutes of your attention once again.